You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning and welcome to Triple R's Radio Therapy, your Sunday morning weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and you've made it. You've made it through two wet and drab weeks of craft and indoor activities for school holidays. I've made it through my first winter cold of the season, or as my husband likes to call it, woman flu. Dr Malice, yeah, I know, thanks babe. <laughs> Dr Malice has made it back from his conference on child trauma, and Lolly Doc's made it through his first emergency department night shift in 10 years, with only one Freddo Frog and his Star Wars drink bottle to keep him company. <laughs> The only one who hasn't made it back yet is Miss Medic. I think she might still be in Borneo. But we've replaced her with not one, not two, but three extra special guests. Yep, that's what it takes to replace Miss Medic. Three whole extra people. So who are these people, I hear you ask? Well, our first two guests come as a pair this morning. They are Dr Vicky Ashton and Paul Barton. They're from Monash University and they've just returned from an award ceremony in Washington, D.C., where they won the award for World's Healthiest Workplace. Yay! Monash! <laughs> yep, there's an award for that. And, yep, you heard me correctly, our very own Melbourne-based Monash University, World's Healthiest Workplace, as judged according to WHO criteria. Amazing, right? What comes to mind when you think about workplace health? I think of a basket of fruit next to the biscuit jar and maybe some signs stuck on the walls reminding everyone to get up from their computer and stretch regularly. But the concept of a healthy workplace has gone far beyond that now with the notion that our workplace could be somewhere where health behaviours, both physical and mental, are actually targeted and improved. Vicky and Paul are going to help us understand just what it is that Monash is doing to improve the physical and mental wellbeing of its employees and what we can all take from it for our own workplaces, triple R included. Then, once we're all feeling healthy and well, we're going to tackle a topic that many people actually find very difficult to talk about, organ donation. Luckily, we've got another special guest, Dr Helen Opdam, Medical Director of the Australian Organ and Tissue Authority and Donate Life, to join us and help us navigate the complexities of talking about death and what we choose to happen to our bodies. Have you thought a lot about organ donation? Maybe you've already made a decision and you might have even put yourself on the National Register. Or maybe it's all just in the too hard basket, something you'll think about later when the time comes. Well, did you know that 7 out of 10 Australians are misinformed about organ donation? Apparently most of us get it wrong when we assume we know who can donate and how to make sure our wishes are followed through. For one thing, being on the register is often not enough. Yep, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have, but an absolutely necessary one. So it's one that we're going to have on the show today with Helen and one that we hope you'll continue after the show as well. So we better get started if we're going to get through all of this in an hour. So go on, grab a cup of coffee and settle in for all this and more as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock. Three triple R. Good morning, team. Malice, I've missed you. Oh, it's thank you. Likewise, it's just so good to be back. It feels like it's been for ages, and yet it's only been one month. Is that all? That's just one session. Yeah. Where yeah. have you been? Oh, look, can I rave about it? Other than for Monash, which it will come to later, <laughs> the rave for me the last month has been the uh, Childhood Foundation Conference, which was held at the Melbourne Convention Centre about a month ago in the beginning of June, with over 2,500 participants, 
And this is where it gets really exciting. 12 or 14 of the great megastars in childhood trauma. Now, anyone who's been following... It's a strange my... concept, isn't it? <laughs> now, th- you, you mm. may think this is weird, yes, but as a child psychiatrist and therapist, one of our great issues is to uh, get a sort of legitimacy that we're not just dealing with little adults... And this was a conference that actually highlighted that children have their own lives, their own joys and own pleasures, their own traumas and neglects, and the consequences of these are very hard for us as professionals to get across to mainstream society. Mm. It's, as you said earlier in the introduction, uh, it is just in the too hard basket. We empathise with children, and so we can't really empathise with their hurt too much. Mm. And here were leading lives. From Italy, the discoverer of the mirror neurons, uh, Dan Siegel, who's very well known to most people as the mindfulness man, Pat Ogden in sensory motor therapy for trauma for adults or children, uh, spiritual uh, indigenous dimensions of trauma in Australia, very important in the intergenerational transmission of trauma. And the list just goes on and on. I I mean, for geeks like myself, uh, Stephen Porges, who has discovered the polyvagal syndrome or theory, which turns 100 years of neuroanatomy on its head not an easy thing we think our anatomy is just a stable thing that's since the biblical times we're the same human beings except Mm. for a missing rib with adam but let's leave that aside (laughs) but you know the polyvagal theory has turned the idea of the vagus nerve totally on its head a geek like me will get really excited about the implications of that and so this was all the background giving evidence that what we really have known intuitively, implicitly that if you neglect children, if you do things untoward towards them they do suffer Mm. and they're not resilient in the sense like a material bounces back they get misshapen Mm. and so so many myths and misconceptions were just corrected and with two and a half thousand people supporting you, the catering the uh, uh, state of the art a social media which gave moment-to-moment um, feedback from participants. Uh, just an aside, so if you missed out on one of these great speakers, you just put on your iPhone and you're getting instant feed of text and photos of what was going on in the parallel sessions. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. And some of the participants and indeed presenters who I talked to said one of the best conferences they've been in the world. Amazing uh, stuff. Really. So I'll now, just Malice, yeah. I want to hear more about the conference, but I just I just feel a bit sorry for Lolly Doc sitting there, you know, we haven't said good morning to him yet oh, and you no, might no, feel no, like I'm, you can't jump onto the mic. So I'm, good morning, I'm, Lolly. Good morning. Good morning. I was actually just thinking about my last uh, visit to the convention centre and thinking about my heroes and that was actually Sex Pose. So it probably <laughs> it probably wasn't an appropriate time to jump in anyway. Did you really so, go to Sex Pose? No, I didn't. Good but I you know, I thought it'd be good for a laugh. That was great for a laugh. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I had much. to out your yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you. <laughs> It was merely for professional interest that he worked. I <laughs> exactly. Mean, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you need to know about that stuff in the emergency department. <laughs> Do you? Well, wherever Don't that you? department but is in your home, bedroom, living anyway. room, wherever. <laughs> I'm glad I could bring it down to a more kind yeah, of the lesser, level yeah, we, the we usual usually, level yeah. as opposed yeah. to the intellectual level, right, the right. heights that malice takes us um, to. How was your first night shift in 10 years? Um, look, I, I must admit I had a very quiet night. It Did was you? Yeah, it was a very quiet, it was an unusually quiet night in the emergency department. Did they department. know that you were on? 
they must have. They must have waited for a better doctor uh-huh. the, night, the next night. But it, it was it was quite unusual. It is a it is a different ecosystem night shift, mm. and um, I do. Shout out to the nurses who run the emergency departments in Australia on nights. It's a pretty amazing place to to work. Yeah. Um, but it was pretty funny. I had my, I packed a lunchbox, uh, as you said. I had yeah, my I had I my, my sandwiches. I had my Star Wars drink bottle, which I stole from the kids. <laughs> um, and I got to eat all of it because it's quite quiet. So it was good. Right. Good it was work. good fun. Did though. you get to sleep at all? No. 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 Nice we, sleeping. I remember when I was an intern, we used to play cricket in the hallway on night shift because it was so quiet. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. It's not anymore. the mental image I have of our hospitals these days. No, but it's a healthy workplace when you play cricket. <laughs> must have been a long time ago that you were an intern, Lolly. Only, it feels like only yesterday. <laughs> so we have got three very special guests coming on Amazing show today. Amazing guests, I'm yeah. excited. Yeah, and I want to leave a lot of time for them. But Melis, I do want to hear a bit more about this conference because it does sound like an amazing thing. Um, any particular... Highlights. I mean, it's. I'm kind of torn. Talking about highlights in relation to child trauma just seems crazy. But I guess, um, I, I, can you come away from a conference like that feeling optimistic about the, the field? Absolutely, and not because of the hype, but because of the neuroscience. And so the downside is the acknowledgement of the reality of trauma in children and infants, and indeed before birth. The upside from the science of neuroplasticity is that virtually every one of these insults and injuries is potentially reversible and the child can get back onto a normal trajectory of development. Now, this isn't just hype. It's actually, if we look for evidence-based medicine and the safety needs, as we'll come to, why is safety so important? Because it is the lack of recognition that is danger, risk and so on, is what becomes eventually traumatic. So at the lowest level, if we know there's a safety risk ratio in just being alive, hey, I mean, you know, everything around us and internally is in a state of balance. Now, trauma happens when things get so out of balance that we disconnect. So the whole issue, that's 50% of the story. This conference emphasised the other 50 How do you repair all that? Mm. And this isn't just language repair. This is actually the mechanisms of what happens in the right brain, hence the polyvagal theory and so on. But it is based on actual evidence, and we've been craving for this for decades. And on this show, we've been talking about uh, the game-changing paradigm for over a decade. Now, these experts were actually the leaders in their field of the paradigm change. So one of the beautiful lines, which was uh, from the Italian professor Vittorio Gillesi, I hope I pronounce it right, (laughs) he's the discoverer of the mirror neurons. Now, he was asked by Joe Tucci, who's the CEO of Childhood Foundation. And by the way, anyone interested, the uh, website is www.childhood.org.au. Amazing organization. And Joe asked uh, uh, Vittorio, did they discover the mirror neurons by chance? You know, which mm. is a beautiful question for a researcher who's stuck in the lab. <laughs> he said, we discovered it by chance but it was no chance that we discovered it. (laughs) Now, isn't that just so elegant (laughs) that the prepared mind will see things 
that others will see as, in fact, in that situation, it was two monkeys imitating each other, mm. one eating a banana and the other one's fired neurons in the same sector of the brain without eating. Mm. Anyone would have said, oh, that's an artefact of electricity currents and so on. It was no chance that Vittorio and his team discovered it. They were primed. Same with penicillin and the history of medicine the primed mind and here we're in the presence of these people oh awesome <laughs> dr You're malice such a geek. <laughs> you've been a child psychiatrist for 163 years yes it's and, about time uh, yep. there's a bit of evidence yeah exactly <laughs> now, my question is when you walked out of that conference what things were you left with that you, that you were going to change in your practice what, what what things were you going to indeed there was so much swirling around in my mind that for the next week i actually wrote some reflections and took photo i took photos and i submitted it to them with my gratitude and thanks and they put it up on a blog site <laughs> uh, the blog site's title by the way is prosody now, that's the most elegant word. Prosody is the musicality and rhythm and language uh, that we use in our voice. And so with children, what I learned was and reinforced, it's not so much what we say, it's how we say it. And that's what prosody is. And once you know prosody, you see it everywhere. <laughs> and this is the communication of the right brain, not intellectual left it's the musicality of the right. And that's the, the title of their, their block site. Mm. And that message resonates with me forevermore. So it's about how you speak to the yeah. children, the tone, yeah. the pace, yes. the volume. It's yep. not actually the words that matter so much. Well, words set 30%, prosody wow. 70%. And not just with children. We've all got a child part in us. And so how we communicate with each other as adults... <laughs> It's right down to the tone that we use. Sorry for my laugh. Lolly Doc's shaking his head. He clearly doesn't have a child part. No way. I was actually, I was just reflecting on, uh, we were talking about uh, your young son just before the show yeah. and about uh, your attempts to stop him, uh, you know, getting himself into trouble in the home. Yeah, and using Exactly right. And yeah. using, using the tone, uh-uh. Hmm. And even just listening to that, the musicality of that, yeah. it actually sounds like um, not it sounds like fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no wonder he thinks it's a game. Well, that actually comes under the heading of motherese. It's a whole language that mothers have with their babies and toddlers and children. It's called motherese. I am bilingual. You are at least, <laughs> if not try and quadra. Yes. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with myself, Dr. Autonomy, Lolly Doc, Dr. Malice, and we've got three extra special guests on the show today. So let me tell you about our first two guests. Sitting beside me today are Dr. Vicky Ashton and Paul Barton. Let me start by telling you about Vicky. So, Dr. Vicky Ashton is Chief Medical Officer and Occupational Health Physician at Monash University. She graduated from medicine at Melbourne Uni and then went on to do a Master of Public Health and then specialise in occupational health and environmental medicine. She's been serving as the Occupational Physician at Monash for 15 years now, heading up the health and wellbeing team. And she's got a real passion for using the workplace to prevent disease through lifestyle modica modification. 
Paul is the Director of Business Support at Monash Uni and he is responsible for strategic planning, innovation, risk management, communications and client engagement for the Buildings and Property Division of the Uni. He's led the OH&S unit for over 12 years as well as playing a key role in the Environmental Sustainability Team and the HR Operations Team and his passion is all about balancing management systems with the culture of an organisation. And the reason we've got both of them in the studio today to chat with us is because they and their team have just won an award, the World's Healthiest Workplace Award Monash University has just received. Amazing stuff. So we thought we'd better get them in and find out what makes a workplace the healthiest in the world and what we can all learn from it. Good morning, Vicky. Good morning, Ronnie. Thank, thank you, you for, for thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having us. It's wonderful. Now I've got a confession to make. Before I found out about your background, I didn't actually know that occupational health was a branch of medicine. I've heard of occupational therapists, you know, OTs in my workplace, but I didn't know that you could do medicine and then specialise in occupational health. So can you tell me a bit about that field and how you came to be part of it? Uh, that's a very good question I get asked by everybody, I mm-hmm. have to say. Mm-hmm. And um, occupational medicine is a specialty uh, well-known in the UK, also in the USA, less well-known in Australia. So what we do is a combination of work and health and health at work. Mm-hmm. So we provide services that are involved in uh, employers' and employees' health and particularly looking at uh, an employee's uh, the effect of their work environment on an employee's health and then their health on, on the work that they're actually doing. So it's mm. broad-ranging, it's a holistic and a preventative role uh, and it involves many skills. So we have, uh, it's a medical specialty, so there's a, a faculty, so you have to be a fellow of the College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine and then that's part of the Royal Australian Australasian College of Physicians and then I did a Master of Public Health as well which I just felt was really helpful in the sort of work that I wanted to get involved with. Mm. And I know, you know, when I sort of think about uh, workplace health, you know, what comes to mind is sort of prevention of, of injuries and making sure people don't hurt themselves at work. But the way that you talk about this field sounds like it's much more than just prevention of injuries. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Uh, yes, certainly. The, it's a paradigm shift now in looking at occupational health in the workplace. So traditionally it was about prevention or even mopping up the problems that occurred. Mm. So, you know, in its rawest form over the, the centuries and probably the industrialised era that we've been through and now we're looking at health promotion. We want people to, to adopt healthy behaviours that are important not just in the workplace but at home, that they can take messages from the workplace to home and spread that further. So we're looking at uh, lifestyle changes as well, so physical activity, mental health, nutrition. We call it general health. That'd be the four pillars of our wellbeing at Monash program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that we've actually based it on the WHO model for a healthy workplace, which came through in about... 2009, 2010, 11. Uh, so that's been the emphasis, and we want that community reach. Mm. 
So, Paul, I might bring you into the conversation as well. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for joining us too. Good morning, good morning. So I hear that you and Vicky were the team that went over to Washington, D.C. to receive this award. Tell us what the process involved of, of applying and, and going over there. What did you have to do? Yeah, look, it's uh, been uh, a good number of months in the making uh, and it was a fantastic experience. Uh, so we had to, first of all, um, submit a, a written uh, sort of submission to the Global Centre for Healthy Workplaces and through our written submission they selected uh, finalists to then fly over to the US and present mm. uh, and uh, So you didn't know that you'd won the award when you flew no, over? No, we okay. were one of three mm-hmm. and so we had 20 minutes to stand up in front of the judges and there was a judge from each of the continents sitting right in front of us yeah. uh, and we had to we had to pitch, we had to present our, our presentations um, we were the last to present so we <laughs> saw the other two present so uh, they were fantastic presentations so we were under a bit of pressure but uh, uh, you know we we outlined what we'd been doing here in Australia and uh, and, and then they basically added up our, our written submission and our presentation and, and then on the end of the day they came out and said, you know, and the winners are Monash University and uh, it was a fantastic experience. Amazing. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we often say that sometimes you get so busy in the day-to-day running of your programs, setting up your initiatives that you forget what we've actually built at mm. Monash is, is making a difference, is world-leading and uh, so it was, a, it was a fantastic day. So help us understand what makes a healthy workplace. You know, if we went and hung out at Monash for a few months as an employee, you know, what might mean what might we notice and and why is it that Monash has has been able to receive this award? <laughs> I don't know where you want to start. Could, it's a big could, question. No, that well it is a big question and we started small and we built it up over a period of time. And I think probably the messages are that uh it's it's important to do what you can. Um, so at Monash, what you would see uh, at the moment is that we have swap programs, so that's staff wellbeing and activity programs, and that's a model we've found has been so successful in bringing uh, the programs to the people so that it, re- it makes it time efficient for the time poor, it's cost effective, it utilises our resources, and we've got wonderful collaboration with Monash Sport, with the community, um, with uh, counselling and the community mindfulness programs. Uh, so so we actually bring a lot of the programs to the office, to the laboratory, to wherever it is. So you would see that, you'd be involved in that. Um, we have a 10,000 step challenge every year, so popular that just actually gets everybody in teams, have a quirky name, get eight people together. They can be Monash employees and a bit of the family. I think one one year someone wanted to put the pedometer on the dog. <laughs> um, that was our nurse. And uh, <laughs> that was successful. Uh, so it's it's broad ranging and I think nutrition is another area that we're looking at. But of course I guess what we shouldn't forget is that we're now smoke free. Uh, uh, and that's been a two year concerted effort uh, with some challenges but with a great result. Um, Lolly dog. One of the, uh, I work in a large tertiary hospital. We have about 8,000 employees and we also have a, a, um, a health and wellbeing program throughout the hospital and all the different campuses that we have. Yet somehow there's a little bit of magic lacking uh, in it. And I imagine you guys have that magic, that culture. And I'm interested to sort of maybe drill down and work out what it is that, that has made that culture build and what, what, what has got buy-in from your employees. 
I think there's a number of things that Monash has, has done over the time. And I think, as Vicky said, it's, we've grown it for over many years. You know, we've been at this for probably a decade now. And it, it started with the very basic, you know, a handful of staff walking around the campus to now a, a really a diverse program. So to me, the magic is the diversity of our program. It's in the health. It's in the general health. It's in the mental health. It's in the nutrition. It's in the physical health. And we have the advantage, being a university, of having all those support structures around so that uh, staff members can interact at any element of, of, the, of the program. And I think, you know, probably our, our other strength is that we've got local champions. There are people in the faculties and departments that we engage with that activate the, the other staff members. And so we, we say our strength is our network of, of wellbeing champions within the departments. And without them, I don't think we would have been as successful as, as we have been. Can I just add something sure. on that? I think the other part of it is that we've got, as, as Paul was saying, our wellbeing champions who are voluntary enthusiasts. So you mm. seek your local champions, but you must have leadership support. And we've been really fortunate in having that. But we've also got ergonomic champions, OHS reps, safety consultants, mental health first aiders, first aiders. So we use every network we possibly can. And health and wellbeing is on our agenda items now, and it's on the university is divided into faculties and divisions so it's on faculty and divisional plans so we we want that accountability when we want that involvement but you've got to have fun mm. and i think the fun factor is what drags people back uh, and it, uh, i think especially with our new employees they go wow this is terrific but even i could hear when we came in with dr malice monash that's wonderful i feel good and that's again that message we wanted through too yeah so in terms of the specifics obviously as a psychologist i'm interested in the mindfulness and, and mental health stuff so specifically you know how do you get employees interested in mindfulness and and how do you you, you use that sort of phrase of you know we take it to the employees you know, how do you do that with mental health stuff really good question and it's the one that's challenging the world and to be honest i think it was one of the factors that did help us in our um in our award uh and so yes mental health in the workplace we've actually had a, a broad base so we have counseling on site for staff and students we have a very good eap program which now offers uh coaching and face-to-face -face for staff and students so that's been terrific uh, and they've also got um, a good platform of information. The mindfulness, we've got two of Australia's world leaders in it and we've been able to have Craig Hassett and Richard Chambers provide, we would call it a taste of one hour, could it be could be less, 45 minutes. We target lunch times and then we've followed up with a four or six week course and that's mm. again on that swap model, bring it to the workplace, bring people in for four or six weeks. Uh, we've also got mental health first aiders. But the mindfulness has been so important. Uh, and now um, Craig and Richard are running uh, mental Mindfulness for Peak Performance, which is on MOOC, massive open online courses through FutureLearn, mm. through support through our CCD uh, Campus Community Division. And that actually has been really helpful in getting to 135,000 people across the world. So when you can bring it out to a global reach, I think it just spreads the word further. So it's not just employees and students at Monash who can use that and, and tap into that program. It's any of us could. Anyone. Could 
could yeah. get online and, and check mm. that program out. And I think from from what you were saying before, Vicky, about the way that this award was judged, um, it sounds like part of the criteria was not just about what you're doing in your individual workplace, but, you know, is it going to have an impact on, on the sort of broader community and, and, and broader world? And so is that the sort of thing that feeds into that, you know, that it's not just employees, it's other people that can access it? I think that's a strength of, of the awards. Uh, what they're trying to do is bring the information in, not for the work, not just for the workplace but to spread that message out to our community i mean we've got a lot to do with our lifestyle improvements and we felt that when we looked at our staff and and the results we had with most of them were inactive most of them were not eating the right diet um, mental health needed to be addressed it's it's the spread of those in, that information you're at work for most of the day but you live another life Mm-hmm. And you need to take those messages out into the community. So we've done a lot of collaboration with uh, Andrology Australia, the Jean Hales Foundation, through our times to say you might uh, Mental Health Week, Are You OK Day, um, Women's Health, Men's Health. It, it's just important that we influence as far as we can. Uh, and keep those messages out there for everybody. And I, I, I think if you think about Monash University, we're so large that we have that ability to ripple out. So, you know, we've got 15,000 staff, we've got 70,000 students, we've got hundreds of thousands of alumni now, and if our programs through them can interact with families and friends, we hear lovely stories of the 10,000 steps where the staff member are uh, participating but then they get family members involved and that's getting them to introduce that 30 minutes of exercise in every day um our complete ban on smoking on campus we've heard lovely stories of staff that's been the impetus for them to stop smoking but they've gone home and then influenced a family member to join them and stop smoking Mm -hmm. so it's that reach beyond our campuses that we're really excited about as well and even in relation to the smoking, I mean, it's not just about becoming a smoke-free campus, is it? There's been um, a targeted approach of providing information from Quit, you know, free of charge. And, yeah, well, and we opened up Quit to all of our students and all of our staff, which mm-hmm. is a, a huge commitment from the university. But we knew if we were going to make this step, we needed to support the whole of the community mm-hmm. through that through that change. It's funny, you know, to hear you talk about the the numbers of staff and students and and the size of Monash. One reaction to that could just be that it's overwhelming, you know, and how could you ever make a sort of lasting change to a culture of a workplace when you're talking about that many people? But hearing you talk about it, it doesn't sound like an overwhelming thing. It sounds like an exciting thing of imagine how many people we could get to, which really speaks to the culture, I think. Yeah, and it's that ability for the university to have broad impact. Um, and But it's also we've had to build. You know, this yeah. has been a, a program building and building over 10 years. Uh, and, you know, we, as I said before, we started off with a handful of people doing physical exercise. We had last year 2,700 staff participating in, this, in the um, 10,000 steps. That's, that's massive growth. Mm. Um, you know, 6,500 people undertaking a health check through the university. Um, mm. Big numbers but then influencing beyond the Mm. campus. We're almost out of time for you two, unfortunately, and I'm just wondering before we wrap up, you know, if you had any key pieces of advice for other workplaces that are sort of hearing about this and that are thinking, wow, you know, if Monash and the size that it is can do something that's this um, far-reaching, what might we be able to do? And, And I know you said sort of start small is the way, but, yeah, what advice would you have to other workplaces? Uh, it's all doable. 
Uh, and I think probably the resources are out there. So I'd be looking at uh, the Healthy Together Victoria Achievement Program, mm-hmm. which is run through the Cancer Council, mm-hmm. and that actually is the ripple effect of the WHO Healthy Workplace Framework that we've worked under. So that looks at uh, physical health, mental health, uh, nutrition, uh, non-smoking, and uh, alcohol on, in workplaces. They've got some great resources. Uh, mental health, there's Headspace. Uh, so I think... You need leadership commitment, you need leadership engagement mm. and you need your workers' involvement. Mm. And then it's looking at how you've got that and how it fits in your organisation. Is it actually a subcommittee through your OHS uh, or some other organise or some way of organising it within your own workplace? And then start with those resources. They mm. are available. Mm. Some quick wins on the, ga- on the board can be some walks around your particular area. That's easy. Just write some, where's the local coffee shop? I can go up there. It's <laughs> mm. 10 minutes there, 10 back. That's great lunchtime. I think the other one is catering, looking at what's being brought in. 50% healthy. You can have a little bit of the red stuff, you know, the bad <laughs> stuff. Good. We won't eliminate it. Um, and look at no smoking or reducing smoking. Um, standing at work. Uh, the uh, I think the National Heart Foundation have some great sheets on sitting less, standing more, <clears throat> Sorry, not only for adults but for children. Mm. So people will buy in for their kids where they might neglect themselves. Great so point. So just start those messages. Yeah. yeah. Paul, any take-home messages or anything that you want to leave us with? Or does that sort of uh, sum having it up? lived this for the last 10 years, I think just have fun. You know, oh, um, yeah. we, we enjoy what we do. Um, and we just continually grow it and, and, and innovate and, and improve uh, and, and you'll get there. Employers Wonderful. will get there. Just start. Well, congratulations again. It's an amazing award and we're very fortunate, I think, to have you guys here in Melbourne to learn from and, and sort of help us in our in our workplaces as well. So congratulations again and thanks for coming in. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And you're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with myself, Dr Autonomy, Lolly Doc, Dr Malice and our third very special guest for this morning, Dr Helen Optam. So we've got Helen onto the show to talk about the quite difficult conversation really around organ donation that we're going to have this morning. But let me tell you a bit about Helen first. So she's the National Medical Director of the Australian Organ and Tissue Authority and Donate Life. She's also a Senior Intensive Care Specialist at the Austin Hospital and I don't quite know how she does that role and Director of the Warringal Private Hospital Intensive Care Unit in Melbourne as well. She's been involved in organ donation since 1998, sitting on national and international societies for organ donation. And she's really committed to improving hospital processes and raising public awareness. So, Helen, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Can I start by asking you... How common is organ donation? I sort of think we've had this conversation many times. Surely lots of people are doing it by now. How common is it? Look, I think one of the problems is that um, few people actually die in the circumstances where donation's feasible. So there's only in Australia about a 1,000 people uh, each year who die on a ventilator in hospital in a situation where their organs could help others through transplantation. So every one of those opportunities is a really kind of precious one. Mm. And sadly, in 
really more than half of those cases donation doesn't proceed and that means there's many people who miss out on life-saving transplants. One of the um I guess important things we're talking about this uh, outside during the ad break is is the personal stories often drive people to become more aware and more involved in organ donation. I'm wondering maybe if you could share one of those with us. So in one of my other roles, I work at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, and that's the centre in Victoria that performs liver transplants. And I see many younger and older people who develop liver failure. Their quality of life is is awful. It's a terminal disease. There is no treatment for it when it's at its end stage. And it could happen to any of us. You know, you can pick up a virus or something can happen to you. You get some funny immune condition and your liver can fail. And without an organ for, for transplantation, um, you know, that, that's it. So, you know, I've seen young people who suddenly develop um, liver failure, one that always um, remains in the top of my mind is a, is a pregnant woman in advanced pregnancy who developed an infection. She needed her baby delivered urgently. That was done, but then she really only had days to live and a liver became available, which was absolutely life-saving for her. And I saw her recently with her young child. And, you know, it's that sort of experience and you think, well, well, why not? Why not agree to be a donor after death? You know, what, would, what good would your organs be otherwise? And it could make such a difference to people who need that life-saving organ transplant or other tissues can be donated that can also um, be life-enhancing or saving for others as well. That just brings me to tears, that story, you know, and I think in my mind the people I imagine requiring organs are not you know, young women who are pregnant, for example. You know, I just think we have such a limited concept of of who requires organs. And to think of a, a pregnant woman whose child has been delivered early, who then, you know, her only chance for survival and being around for this child was receiving a liver. I mean, I can't imagine feeling more stuck in life, that that's your only hope and, and you're just sort of at the whim of someone's goodwill. Look, and I think it's one of those things, we're, we're actually all more likely to need a transplant in our lifetime to develop organ failure unexpectedly or through some inherited or other condition then we are ever to die in a situation where we can donate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a community, if we want that opportunity to be available to us, and it's, you know, the impact it makes not just on the individual, it's their family, it's their communities. You know, it's, they're marvellous stories when someone has life restored to near normal with a, with a transplant. But I think the one of the challenges is, you know, it's a it's a death subject. You know, making that decision to be willing to leave your organs for others after death, it's just something people don't like to talk about. I think sometimes people think, oh, I don't want to talk about death, I don't want to, you know, moz myself, mm -hmm. or, or they have anxieties or they don't understand um, what's involved. And the, the, the biggest challenge we have as healthcare professionals who care for families who sadly are in a situation of a person dying who they love and then they are having to make a decision about donation is if they 
they don't know what their loved one wanted. And one of the big things we're encouraging people to do is you know, find out about donation, be willing to be a donor, but then let those closest to you know because when we talk to those families, if they know their loved one wanted to be a donor, it makes that decision so much easier at an otherwise awful time. And, you know, they can honour the wish and, and you know, fulfil that last wish of the person they love and it's can give families a great deal of comfort to know that they've done it and they've helped others. And that's probably one of the critical steps, I think, that we often don't think about um, uh, when you get into that crisis situation of your unwell family member is, is the role of the family and how important the family is in, in, in I guess, helping that, that decision come to fruition. And um, I, I obviously see that, and you do as well, at work. And, and it's so lovely when you do have a family that's bonded together by the decision of the person who, who is about to donate. I think that's an incredible, uh, incredible thing to be part of. Yeah, so people can register on the Australian Organ Donor Register and, in fact, we're moving into Donate Life at the end of the month, which is a, a, a week of promotion in Australia to um, encourage public awareness about donation and this, um, this year's Donate Life Week's theme is What Are You Waiting For? Join the Australian Organ Donor Register online and discuss your donation decision with your loved ones. You know, there's more than 1,500 people on the waiting list in Australia needing an urgent organ transplant. So it's an opportunity to share you know, your experience of listening to this radio program or something you've seen on the media to just start that conversation at home because even just a brief conversation can be memorable for family members because when we are talking to families, we always do check the register, but families need to confirm those decisions made by the individual and I have to feel comfortable with the process because families are part of the dying or death process of the person they loved um, they're important for providing vital health information about the person who can donate to make the donation and transplantation as safe as possible so they're really inter- integral to the process and that's actually a critical point isn't it and I didn't quite understand that I thought that you know if I was on the register as an organ donor then absolutely my wishes would be satisfied if it comes to that but what I'm starting to understand now is that unless I've spoken to my family about it, that that wish might not be satisfied because if my family wasn't sure what I wanted and they in the moment said, no, we don't know if that's what she wanted, then it might actually not go ahead even though I'm on the register. Is that right? So if, you, if you're on the register, um, there's a, you know, donation will occur in more than 90% of instances if you die in that situation where it's feasible. Mm-hmm. If... Um, you're on the, regi- on the register or if your family knew you wanted to be a donor, then we've got family consent rates in excess of 80%. Mm-hmm. But if families don't know what their loved one wanted, we've got a consent rate that's less than 50%. Okay. And, you know, we need, we need to do better than that because, you know, if no one declines a, a life-saving transplant. You know, everyone says... Yes, you know, if you need a transplant or the person you love needs one, we don't have a 50% consent rate. We've got, you know, a 100% consent rate. We all have to to um, join in on this process. It's really part of, you know, community solidarity. We want access to this, so we need to be prepared to be a donor as well. Just a question uh, leading on from Dr Autonomy's introduction earlier, that this is often in the too hard basket 
as you've just said, that uh, 100% of us would want the option. Yet when it comes to the other part of that very same question of how many of us are prepared to offer, it drops right off. Do you have some sort of understanding of this incredible imbalance between we know we want to live, yet we're not prepared to donate to others to ensure that? Look, I don't think it's... um, I I don't think... Look, I think there is a small proportion of people who um, have thought it through and persist with that obviously inconsistent conflict, Mm. a sort of hypocrisy. But that's not the majority of Australians. I think Australians are very generous, but I think this is just something that people often haven't thought of. And if they Mm. haven't thought about it and then um, spoken with their relatives, when it then comes to their relatives making a decision, that's when we have a low consent Mm. rate. And like every cause in the community, you know, we're all trying to kind of make people aware of this important issue and I think you know people get a bit overwhelmed and they can just put it aside and not want to think about it Mm. I think sometimes people um have wrong information about it as well Mm. um you know some of the myths out there and they are absolute myths are that you know maybe if I joined the register um, the health professionals won't try as hard to save my life, you know, if I'm dying, which we all know is just so untrue. You know, we always try as health professionals to to save a person's life and it's only if they've died or it's clear that death's inevitable that donations considered in, in that situation. Sometimes people think they're not healthy enough through lifestyle choices or other mm-hmm. health conditions. Mm-hmm. But again, there's such a desperate need for organs for transplantation that there's very few medical exclusions so people shouldn't mm-hmm. rule themselves out they should assume that they can donate We've so had smokers drinkers they can all donate smokers drinkers people have used intravenous drugs people with hepatitis um, people of quite advanced age we've had people donate livers that have been life-saving in their 70s or 80s mm. Don't rule yourself out. You could save a life or or many. Hmm. Do you think that having heard the very sensitive way that you've considered this, nevertheless the topic itself is still taboo in our culture? I'm not sure. I think, look, I'm not sure if it's taboo. I hope it's not taboo. Um, Here I am trying to, you know, break down. I think, Mm. look, it is maybe a topic people don't don't feel comfortable speaking about. Some people from different religious or cultural backgrounds may have a a sense it's not part of something that's consistent Mm -hmm. with their culture. Again, um, that's not true. All of the major religions are supportive of donation. They view that saving a life is one of the the, the highest things, that the best things that they can they can do that's consistent with their religion and religious teachings. Sometimes people feel that some of the cultural processes or religious processes around death would be disturbed by donation. But again, Mm. the health professionals and the process can be modified to help accommodate all of those rituals and customs. So... no. Well, I was going to say, for those people who, are, who have never really talked about organ donation or are now thinking, how do I go about doing this? What are your sort of next steps, I guess? Well, look at the donatelife.gov.au website. Find out the facts. Um, there's a link there onto the Australian Organ Donor Register. 
find out some information about Donate Life and talk about it, promote it amongst your friends, talk to your family. Mm -hmm. Uh, But really just, I guess, the most simple thing would be speak with your family so that you're willing to be a donor and, and if you can, register online as well on the Australian Organ Donor Register. And, I mean, we just can't hit home enough, can we, that there's not enough organ donors and there's 1,500 people on the waiting list as we speak. And I think most people perhaps don't realise that it's only a small proportion of deaths in which you can actually harvest organs, which means that it is such small numbers and then of those who've consented as well, you know. it's. And I think sometimes people think, oh, someone else can do it. Mm. You know, they think a lot of people are dying, so there must be, you know, not us, not in our tragic set of circumstances mm. i think um the situation in which donate donation is feasible is usually in sudden unexpected death it, it, it's always tragic for mm. a family it's always sad um for many families though knowing that they've fulfilled the love their loved one's wishes and that they've helped others through transplantation it it brings some comfort at that time we're going to put a link to that website up on our facebook page if you want more information and unfortunately we're going to have to finish there helen thanks so much for that conversation thanks so much changes a few minds and start some other conversations lolly doc dr malice kent on the bus buttons thanks everyone and dr vicky ashton and paul barton thank you as well thanks everyone that's it for today that's it for today um stay tuned for einstein a go-go and we will be back next week at 10 a.m whenever i come home after a hard day's work i love to listen to the sounds of triple r 102.7 you've been listening to a podcast from australia's best known community radio station three triple r 102.7 in melbourne For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.